As we continue with our study on Psalm 78, we come to our fourth part. Our fourth part. Now, there'll be one more part after this, part five. But Psalm 78 focuses upon passing on God's word to the next generation. The psalmist is driven by the fact that obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings cursing, and so he challenges the next generation to obey God's word and not forget God's works. And uh, let me recap again. We see this theme throughout all of the scripture, beginning in Deuteronomy 6, 6-7. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Teach them diligently to your children. In other words, you're going to Train up your children in the way they should go, as we see in the book of Proverbs. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. Now, that biblical promise uh, can be can be depended upon, can be trusted upon. Suffice to say, yes, when they are old, they will not depart if you have trained them up biblically. Now, again, th- that also allows for a period of rebellion. You know, you've trained them up in their youth, uh, and when they're old, they will not depart. So there is the possibility and probability of, of some rebellion in there. But if they've been properly trained, if they've been trained biblically, then when they're old, they will not depart from it. Of course, that also generates the question, well, when does the training stop? It stops when you stop being the parent or the grandparent, when you stop being the person who's more spiritually mature than them. At which point should never happen until God calls you home. So until the day you draw your last breath, those who are your children, your spiritual children, those that are under you, you are always in the role of training. Now the training takes uh, different uh, avenues, different means, different methods, but there's always that responsibility of training. And, you know, we haven't explored all the various ways in which, you know, training occurs. Suffice to say, we need to train them regarding God's word. You know, and it's not just, well, I'll put my kid in in Sunday school and that'll take care of it. No. Well, I'll take my kid to church and that'll take care of it. No. Well, I'll put my kid in a Christian school. That'll take care of it. No. Again, all of those ministries are, you know, are nice and, and at times appropriate, but the, the reality is none of those ministries can take the responsibility that God has given you as the parent. Your responsibility is to train them up in the Word of God. And that means reading the Word of God. That means interpreting the Word of God, explaining the Word of God, and applying the Word of God to their life. You know, again, let's say you've disciplined your child. Your child did something wrong and you disciplined them. Well, I would certainly expect that in training them biblically, that discipline isn't just you did wrong and here's your punishment, but you did wrong. Here's what God's word says about that. Here's why this is wrong, because God says X, Y, and Z. Again, uh, we're to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. And again, just because they reach some magical number of 18 uh, doesn't mean that your job of training is done. And again, if we're not talking in terms of physical numbers, but, you know, at what point is somebody spiritually mature enough that they don't need to be discipled any longer? Well, the Bible says there is no time. As long as there's one who is more spiritually mature, there is a spiritual father or mother, and there is a spiritual child, that 
engagement of discipleship or training continues on. Now, in verses 1 through 4, the psalmist says, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works, which he has done. Here's our call. Our call in verses 1 through 4, to pass on God's word to the next generation. Verse 5 to 8, For he established a testimony in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart. So we've been called to train. Now we're commanded to train. We have a command in verses five through eight, a call in one to four, a command in five to eight. And then the psalmist, after giving us this command to train them, now we are giving a series of cautionary tales, if you will, uh, from the scriptures as to how or how we should conduct ourselves or not conduct ourselves. And so he begins in verses 9 through 11. He looks back at the sons of Ephraim who were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. They forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. So here's caution one. And this caution is beware of forgetting God's word and works. Beware of forgetting God's word and works. That's the first thing we need to begin training our children with. Warn them, caution them to beware of forgetting God's word and works. Then we saw another caution in verses 12 to 20. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea, caused them to pass through. He made the water stand up in like a heap. Then he led them with a cloud by day and all the night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness. He gave them abundant uh, drink like the ocean deaths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers, yet they still continue to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their hearts they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so the waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? Now, I hope that you're seeing here that the biblical psalmist is rehearsing biblical history to give us these cautions. And the caution we have here in verses 12 to 20 is beware of testing God's word and works. You know, I'm reminded of what Paul says in Corinthians and in Romans. These things are written for our learning, for our instruction, so that we don't do the same thing. So, you know, we always need to be taking our children, taking those we're responsible for, those who we're training, and take them back to the scriptures, start in the Old Testament, and begin to draw lessons, life lessons, from these historical narratives. So beware of testing God's word and works, verses 12 to 20. Then we saw 12, or excuse me, 21 to 33. 
Therefore, the Lord heard and was full of wrath and a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also mounted against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. Man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by his power he directed the south wind. And when he raised, or excuse me, when he rained meat upon them like the dust, even winged fowls like the sand of the seas, then he let them fall in the midst of their camp, round about their dwellings. So they ate and were filled, and their desire he gave to them before they had satisfied their desire. While the food was in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them and killed some of their stoutest ones and subdued the choicest men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wonderful works. So he brought their days to an end in futility and their years in sudden terror. And so we have a caution. Beware of doubting God's word and works. Beware of doubting God's word and works. And then we wrapped up last time with verses 34 to 39 Beware of deceiving God. Beware of deceiving God. Verse 34 says, When he killed them, then they sought him and returned and searched diligently for God. And they remembered that God was their rock and the most high God, their redeemer. But they deceived him with their mouth and lied to him with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast towards him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he being compassionate, forgave their iniquity, and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and did not arouse his wrath. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. And now we come to another caution in verses 40 to 55. Another caution, beware of grieving God. Now, you know, immediately upon hearing grieving God, we cannot help but think of that New Testament injunction that warns us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, the context is the same. Beware of grieving God. Let's begin with verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again, they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power. The day when he redeemed them from the adversary, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zoan, and, the, and turned their rivers to blood, and their streams they could not drink. He sent among them swarms of fly which devoured them, and frogs which destroyed them. He gave also their crops to the grasshopper and the product of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hailstones and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave over their cattle also to the hailstones and the herds to bolts of lightning. He sent upon them his burning anger, fury, indignation, and trouble, a band of destroying angels. He leveled a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave over their life to the plague and smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the first issue of their virility in the tents of Ham. But he led forth his own people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them safely so they did not fear, but the sea engulfed their enemies. So he brought them to his holy land, to this hill country, which his right hand had gained. He also drove out the nations before them and apportioned them for an inheritance by measurement and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. Now, one would think that at this point, after all of these cautions, that Israel would have learned her lesson, but sadly, 
she has not. And we can also now understand why the psalmist is exhorting us to learn the lessons that the previous generation forgot. And so we see in this narration, we see sin, we see judgment, we see mercy. And so he sums up in verse 40, Israel's hard heart. They rebelled against God, and that rebellion caused God grief. So what is grief when we grieve the Holy Spirit? It's rebellion, okay? Rebellion causes grief. It causes pain. And also part of that grieving wasn't just the rebelling, but they were testing God. They were trying God. They were causing him pain. And uh, we see here that there is a denial of the Holy One of Israel. They've denied his power. Again, we think about grieving the Holy Spirit. Well, it's rebelling against what God has said. It's tempting God. It's trying God. Well, God, let's see if you can do this. And then grieving the Holy Spirit is simply just flat out denying God. And yes, these are all things that believers are capable of doing. And if they do such, they will be culpable of grieving the Holy Spirit and will suffer the consequences of such action. Now, notice what God did. He was the Holy One, and he redeemed them from their adversary, from their distress in Egypt. He accomplished it through signs and wonders in Egypt and in Zoan. Remember, Zoan is the land uh, of Goshen, the, the main city in Goshen where the Israelites dwelled. And again, what were these signs? Well, we have basically the plagues of Exodus 7 through 12 summarized here. Now, we don't have all of the plagues mentioned, and they're not in the same order, but nonetheless, we have them here for us as a reminder of what God has done. First, The rivers were turned to blood. Second, flies devoured. Third, frogs devoured. Fourth, grasshoppers and locusts ate the crops. Fifth, hail and frost. Sixth, death of the firstborn. And of course, that was the main consummation of God's wrath. And notice how God's anger is described here as burning, as a heat. You know, he's so angry, he's He's furious, and it's pictured as a fire. Again, our God is a consuming fire. We see wrath, rage, indignation, trouble. And he sent the angels out to to cause this destruction. And again, that's something we don't see necessarily in Exodus until we get to the 10th plague. But in all of these plagues, as God was pouring them out, he was dispatching his angels to wreak this devastation upon Egypt. And of course, uh, what was the result? All the firstborn in Egypt were destroyed. And notice the statement here, the strength in the tents of Ham. Of course, we know uh, Ham's descendants settled uh, Mizpah or Egypt, and uh, that's the reference here. Again, notice the reference takes us all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 10, verses 6 through 12 in particular. So God's powers manifested in judgment. Uh, God's people thumb their nose at it. They forget it. They doubt God. They rebel against God. And now they have grieved God. And so he reminds them, I was your shepherd. I poured out my vengeance upon Egypt because they mistreated my sheep. As your shepherd, I guided you. You were never left on your own. I liberated you. I led you. I protected you. And I caused the Egyptians to drown in the sea. 
I brought you to the Holy Land. I conquered the, the hill country. I gave it to you as an inheritance. I divided it amongst the tribes. And nonetheless, you grieved me. You continued to thumb your nose at me. You continued to rebel. You continued to doubt and to test me. And so I am grieved. And there are consequences for grieving God. There is what's called judgment. Make no mistake, my friends, we need to pass that word on to the next generation, that there is judgment, what the Bible calls leanness of soul. There are curses to those, believer or not, to those who grieve God. Again, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, all these things happened as examples, and they were written for our admonition on whom the end of the ages have come. Our admonition. So, folks, beware, be warned, be wise. Heed those scriptures. Uh, Let's close with a final caution in verses uh, 56 through 64, and we'll finish up the rest next week. Verse 56 to 64, Yet they tempted and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned back and acted treacherously like their fathers. They turned aside like a treacherous bow. For they provoked him with their high places, aroused his jealousy with their graven images. When God heard, he was filled with wrath and greatly abhorred Israel, so that he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men, and gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hand of the adversary. He also delivered his people to the sword. He was filled with wrath at his inheritance Fire devoured his young men, and his virgins had no wedding songs. His priests fell by the sword, and his widows could not weep. Here's the caution. Beware of provoking God. Beware of provoking God. Now notice there is a building here. You know, they didn't provoke God overnight. It started, started rather, back with forgetting God's word and works. When you forget God's word, you test God's word. When you test God's word, you doubt God's word. When you doubt God's word, you begin then to cross over to deceiving God. Then you grieve God, and now you provoke God. And so we see this cycle that started in the wilderness, continued all through their days in the land. They, ma- they manifested disobedience. They did not keep his testimonies, but they turned back. Now that verb, turned back, we get the word backslid from. Here, it's the word apostasy. Now here's what happened. And that, that, that wilderness generation was a saved generation. But this generation is an apostate generation. And this is the concern. Yes, you can, you can have a believer who, who sins, who, who forgets God. But if they're truly the child of God, they're brought back. But here's what ha- happens when we don't train our, our children in the way they should go. That we're going to raise a generation, we're going to raise a group of children who aren't, necess- who, who aren't saved, who aren't the saved who, who made a mistake and sinned. No, we're going to raise up a generation of apostates because we failed to train them up. And apostasy is something that a true, genuine child of God cannot commit. Apostasy means to turn away. And Hebrews 6 makes it clear, when someone turns away, when they commit that final form of apostasy, they can never, ever return back to repentance. And this, my friends, is why it is so important that while they're young, we begin that training process. 
so they will not act treacherously. Well, the children of Israel became the objects of God's wrath, so much so that he cast them aside. Now notice, again, here's their apostasy. They became idolatrous. They had high places. They carved images of Baal. They had pagan shrines in God. And this is how apostasy operates, folks. Because you'll have true religion, you'll have biblical religion, but then there'll be a drift that we want to start mingling in to true religion. We want to bring in all of these things from pagan religions. Folks, when we start to bring in the signs and the symbols and and the, the rituals and the relics of pagan religions, we are dabbling in apostasy. And make no mistake, we are angering God. And we are heading in the path of idolatry. This is what's called syncretism. We cannot align biblical religion with pagan religion. But syncretism is a major problem in the church today, a major problem amongst Christians today, and it is sin. He says, they, my people ask counsel from their wooden idols, offered sacrifices on mountaintops, burned incense on the hills to false gods. Hosea 4, 12 to 13. This is spiritual adultery, my friends, spiritual adultery. So beware of adopting the, the rituals, the relics, the signs, the symbols of pagan religions. Because, my friends, it will anger God to the point he utterly rejected. He abhorred Israel. He abandoned the tabernacle. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant, that's his strength, his glory, uh, was captured. He is furious with Israel, his inheritance, so that he allows them to be slaughtered. Their virgins are left husbandless. The priests are killed. The widows have no lamentation. This is a great disaster here in verses 63 to 64. This is the captivity. My friends, beware of provoking God because to provoke God is to provoke his judgment. And that is a tremendous lesson that we must pass on to the next generation. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, Lord, we come before your throne of grace and mercy. We come to you because of your son of grace, your son of mercy. He has, in dying and shedding his blood and being buried and risen again, he has imparted to us grace and mercy. And it is because of that grace and mercy that we come boldly before your throne of grace to find help in our time of need. And Father God, we we submit to you. We come to you asking for help, asking for encouragement, asking for strength, Because, Lord, we have a tremendous task of training up the next generation. Whether they're our physical or our spiritual descendants, we have a responsibility to pass on to them your word, to pass on these lessons. And, Father, my prayer is that... uh, that that you would encourage us to do so. Father, we confess that of any failure on our part in the past, that Father, if, if we've not done that, if we've not trained up that next generation, then Lord, in your mercy, forgive us. But Father, then give us another opportunity. Help us to start afresh. Help us to pick up and move forward. Lead us and direct us into your truth and give us uh, the encouragement, the strength that we need to confront that generation. Lord, it's difficult, especially with those that we care about, those that we love, to confront them with sin. But Father, it is more damnable 
to love them and say, well, I can't tell them that because I might hurt their feeling. And, in, and it's damnable because, Father, in doing so, we condemn them to an eternity in hell. Father, help us to love them enough to tell them the truth. Help us to love them enough to point them to your word, to train them up, to engage them in the teaching of your word, to explain your word to them, Father, that we might have the opportunity to uh, uh, evaluate and then apply that word to their life. And so, Father, we give you the praise and the glory because we know that you're able, you're sufficient, Father, and you will help us to that end. And we give you the praise, we give you the glory. And to this we say, amen.